This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Continually, we're watching with one eye uh, the case of uh, the Laura Babcock murder trial. Uh, detectives have seized evidence in search uh, for Laura Babcock are testifying in trial today uh, following cell phone pings and such sound familiar and um, trying to piece together the last moments uh, in this person's uh, life of course Mark Smith uh, Smitch and Dellen Millard charged uh, in the murder of Laura Babcock joining us now to talk about all of this give us a bit of an update Jordan Donich is with us criminal lawyer Donich Law he is with us now Jordan thanks for taking the time to join us uh, it seems that cell phone uh, technology playing an important part in this case yes and you know what Scott it's not just this case it's our lives generally okay these devices have become essentially mini spying machines, okay? And they're good and bad, okay? Good in the sense that it could, you know, perhaps exonerate you in a crime if you're not in the specific place at the specific time or be used against you in trial. How close do you have to be? How ac- well, I guess technology is as accurate as it can be. That being said, uh, how does this help paint a picture of where you are or where you were? So it it depends on what the device is used for, okay? So if you're obviously shooting out text messages, making phone calls, um, that can be traced to a specific tower. And we've actually even seen this in aviation. If if you'd recall, the Malaysia Airlines that disappeared a few Mm. years ago was pinging as well. Uh, two, you know, different types of towers, but it was it, that same technology was used to locate something. Um, so it's going to depend on the usage of the device, and of course, the nature of the communication as well. Uh, is this how accurate can this be? Uh, and by that I mean just because you're in the area doesn't necessarily mean you commit a crime. And that's right. So um, I've battled that on several occasions, right? The police using devices to say, hey, you must have been here. You must have started this fire or done something because we have proof that your device was in this area. So you're right. The problem is it assumes the person has the device, right? That's the assumption that the person has that device. So obviously this would still just be a small piece of a large puzzle. And that's what's happening here. And again, this is what happens when you have a situation where there is no body. Right? Mm-hmm. What else do you go to? You mm-hmm. have to go to everything and anything else you can possibly find. And that's what we're dealing with here. And again, this is going to be used as another small piece of evidence to try and connect the dots. Uh, there was, in one of the uh, raps that came out uh, in testimony from Mark Smitch, he made reference to uh, the phone being in water. Do you think they'll ever find this phone? Um, well, you know, it, like anything, time erodes evidence as well. So as time progresses, it will be more and more difficult to recover anything. So, I mean, could it be found? Yes. And then even if it is found, the question is what's recoverable? Uh, So we've talked before about trying to prosecute without a body. Doesn't necessarily mean that this is, uh, it's certainly more difficult, but certainly not impossible, is it? That's right. And we've, yeah, we've talked about this before. And there are, there have been studies uh, throughout North America that support a high conviction rate, even though there is no body. And, and you want that, right? You don't want to incentivize bad people or murderers uh, to just find better ways to dispose of a body, 
you know, in the hopes of not having a conviction at the end. So the stats are there, and yes, they do support the fact that uh, even though there's no body, the police can still convict you of murder. Talk a little bit about how this uh, cell phone evidence is presented in court. It was quite fascinating listening to uh, the police talk about how uh, they had... uh, Cal- uh, gathered this information and then put it through software in order to make almost like a presentation of where this person was. Yeah, so typically the way that evidence comes in is through an expert, okay, whether it's from the telecommunication provider or an expert the police have. And they will essentially, that expert will try to testify to the uh, accuracy of that information, okay. Um, and then what, what a lot of times happens is the defense will call their own expert. And that expert will perhaps raise a doubt with respect to accuracy. And then you have something called the battle of the experts. Uh, so, and then ultimately a trier of fact or a jury will determine, you know, perhaps how reliable and how credible that information is. In this case, it would be cell phone data. Uh, Millard representing himself in this case, uh, many surprised in the opening days that uh, he was doing so. Any thoughts on his uh, progress and his performance to date? So I think, you know, if we look at this more generally, we have to ask, why is he representing himself, okay? Forget about daily performance. And I think it, it is a, it's a protest on his behalf for whatever reason. Perhaps, uh, perhaps he knows that uh, uh, his time is almost up. Perhaps he knows that he's guilty. Who knows? Uh, but generally, generally, innocent people don't represent themselves. Is this psychopathic behavior? I mean, it's definitely, uh, you know, atypical. That's right. And, and, and we have to think about this, right? If you're an innocent person, if, if uh, you didn't commit a crime, if you don't even have to pay for the lawyer, it's free by legal aid. You don't even have to pay for a lawyer. So you take money out of it. Why wouldn't you get counsel? If you're genuinely not guilty, you'd want that help so that you can increase your odds and your chances. So to me, it's a bit of a protest move. Uh we had heard initially that uh, legal aid wasn't interested in, in representing him. Uh, is money an issue? Could he have, does he have the means to, to have his own lawyer? Well, there's, there are appeal routes within the legal aid process, okay? We don't know if he exhausted them, okay? But generally, the government will fund uh, a defense if you meet a legal threshold for income. So your income has to be below a certain amount, which it probably is now. And you also have to be relatively poor, and, and, and the charge has to be very serious. So, I mean, th- that structure would be examined by Legal Aid Ontario. And if, and if, it's, if he is found ineligible, it could be because he has money. And then for whatever reason, he's not using that for his legal defense. Could, could he, represent him representing himself, somehow taint this case, somehow create a mistrial or some sort of situation where it, it just goes south? And that could be part of his strategy. His strategy could be to just... That, was my, that was my next point. What are your, th- what are your <laughs> thoughts on that? Well, my thoughts are uh, that um, what your thoughts were, and that it, it, this is a protest move. Uh, it's a strategy maybe to just complicate things. Because things will be complicated more if you don't know the rules. That's just basic, uh, basic business. So um, that could be what it is, right? If, if per, or delay, right? It could also be used to delay, just extend yeah. the trial, 10 extra days, have 10 more days in court. Um, but it's, it's definitely probably one of those two motives. Uh, how important is it for the judge not to lose their cool in something like this, not become frustrated? 
and, and, and that's right. If we want to avoid a mistrial, okay, so if you want to avoid a situation where there was an issue at trial and, and we have to have another trial in a year, the judge has to be even more impartial. The judge has to be even more liberal to say, hey, look, we gave this guy all the time he needed. We let him go on the stand as much as he wanted to talk about whatever he wanted to cross-examine on all his points. We at no point bullied this guy, even though he's self-represented, into perhaps not having a full uh, answer in defense. Would the prosecution change their plan because he is representing himself for that reason? You don't want to beat up on the guy? They would probably be more aggressive, I would think. They would be more aggressive. Uh, I would think so because, listen, it's not about, um, right, to, to them it's about getting a conviction. To them it's about getting evidence, right? Um, as long as they're doing it ethically, as long as they're following court rules and procedure, I mean, the gloves are off. Do you think we'll get halfway through this and he'll change course, Millard? Well, if he really wants to be difficult, maybe, yeah. I mean, maybe he could say, I want to get a lawyer now, right? So at what (laughs) point does the judge say, you know what, you're just wasting our time, pal. Let's get going. Generally, the judges won't do that, okay? And again, we want to avoid a situation where it looks like perhaps a judge was maybe impatient or didn't give them, you know, the full time to have a full answer in defense. So... If an accused changes their mind and they want counsel, um, generally they should have that right, and I think that would be the right decision. Because then if the court says, no, you've already started on your own, finish up, buddy, then he could legitimately have an argument to set aside the conviction. His argument would be, look, I got halfway through, I thought I was okay, um, I realized that you know, I'm not a lawyer and I need legal help, but the judge said no. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Then there's something wrong with this decision, I shouldn't be convicted of murder. So it could be used to derail the conviction later on. Hmm. Uh, do you think we'll either? Do you think we'll see Smitch take the stand? Because that would be fascinating to watch him cross-examine Smitch. Right. So again, this is it, it's gonna really come down to how the evidence comes out and he, and, and how strong it, it appears along the way. So I mean, he might, uh, but really, it's going to be his decision at that time. And, and of course, you know, I, I, I would think how the trial is developing at that moment. Uh, here's another angle on this. Um, how does Smitch's attorneys handle having Millard represent himself? Does that change their plan in any way? I don't think so, because to them, you, you might as well... Here's how I see it. Whenever someone's co-accused, right? Whenever you, and co-accused generally aren't in homicides. They're almost always in bar fights, club districts. Mm-hmm. Three guys come out, they're all drinking... They get in a fight with another group of guys. One person gets hit. One person throws a punch. Police don't know who it is. They charge everybody. Yeah. Okay. That's what happens. Um, and th- what I tell these people that walk in my office is, is that you kind of have to treat the co-accused, um, the other person charged as an adver- adversary, just like you would the crown, because that person isn't going to take a fall for you. Mm. They want to get off just as much. So I would think he should view the other party with counsel just as he would view the crown. Right, someone that's going to try to push the blame on him. Uh, I'm thinking if the prosecution's going to take advantage of it, then Smitch's lawyers must be able to. And that's correct. Yeah. Yeah, and, that, that, and that's my answer, yes. I, I believe that uh, why wouldn't they exploit a weakness? Uh, and not having counsel is generally a weakness. Um, as we move forward uh, with this, does this become easier for Millard, or does this become more difficult? Well, it's probably as difficult as as it's going to get, I would think. I mean, it's a complex trial. 
Um, but really, yeah, it's going to depend on the direction of the case, how the evidence comes out, what the other parties testify. And as we get more experts, right, about cell phone data and all kinds of things that we're hearing, um, that is going to increase complexity for not just the self-represented accused, but for everybody in that room, as far as I'm concerned. Um, to the, to, we haven't been talking about him representing himself as of late, so... Uh, it, it must not be, it mu- there must not be anything out of the ordinary at this point. Right, so he's probably holding up as best as he can, but I mean, what we're seeing now, and I think the attention is being drawn to more now, is the, the developments in the case and the use of this indirect evidence, right? The use of this other material that can be used, that is being used to crystallize uh, the story of what transpired. You talked uh, about the prosecution bringing experts, this sort of thing. Would he do that? That's right. So again... I mean, there's um, obviously where your legal team is needed. Right, right. So we always bring our own experts in these cases because it's, you know, it's like basic business. You're paying somebody to come testify. Generally, they're going to give you information that's probably useful to you, right? And then, you know, the defense lawyer is going to bring their own experts and it's, that expert's going to have their opinion. So you get to a point where you literally have two experts, literally, both experts qualified that have opposite conclusions or, or, or differing conclusions. And then the court's left with, okay, where do we go from there? Um, so not having an expert certainly weakens your ability to attack that evidence used by the Crown. So I'm just trying to picture what Millard's life must be like. He's in court, then he goes back to his holding cell and works on this all night? Like, it must be exhausting. Well, but there, so there's the problem with what I think you just said. I don't think he's working on anything. Yeah. Okay. So um, he's probably contemplating what happened the day of, as opposed to what's happening the next day. Or he's just trying to get through another day. I mean, generally, someone who's self-represented is not working on things. You can't. Yeah. You just physically can't. Again, it's a protest. It's a choice. It's a right. Whatever. That's no problem. Um, but that is generally not what's happening when someone's self-represented. Do you think the judge or the Crown is, has in the back of their mind that this guy just may be trying to A, delay it, or you know, somehow derail the whole thing, like that's the whole plan here? I think everyone has that in the back of their mind, and that's why things are going to proceed extra cautiously to make sure there's no argument that uh, later on, if he's convicted, that he wasn't given a full chance to answer uh, uh, himself in court. Surprised at any of this, or does nothing surprise you anymore? I mean, in in this business, uh, you know, you see enough of these things that I, I suppose we can get a little bit numb to it. But, you know, every day for sure, you know, has different developments, as we're seeing here with technology, right, now becoming a greater and greater and greater part uh, of the court process. And, you know, uh, and I'll just say one more note. Um, your, your people's cell phones, their mobile devices are spying machines, right? You carry that anywhere. You know, people are so quick to photograph everything. What they don't realize is they could be creating evidence against themselves mm. in the process. And we see that all the time. I mean, well, it's and, and another bizarre. thing I talk about all the time is these dash cams, right? I yeah. know we're getting a little off topic. Everyone wants a dash cam to, I don't know what, it, I don't even know why they have dash cams. I guess in case somebody hits them or in case mm. they see someone cut them off or in case somebody damages their car. What they don't realize is what happens when they are inadvertently involved in something, and their own dash cam is now used against them. <laughs> that's a valid point. I don't and that's think... what I tell people. Why create more <laughs> evidence in this world? Oh, that's a fascinating point. Jordan, uh, Jordan Donich has been with us, criminal lawyer, Donich Law. Jordan, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated.
My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, we talked to Dan Malek, health uh, sciences professor, Brock University, earlier on in the week talking about uh, legislation in regard to the distribution of recreational marijuana uh, in Ontario. Those, uh, that legislation, well, a little, at least a little bit more information has come forward, and Dan Malek is with us now. Dan, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate this. Hang on. It might be me here. Dan, are you there? Yes, I am. <laughs> it's me. I got fat fingers today. That's all right. Uh, so I read something the other day. Is marijuana racist, the term marijuana? Um, there's some argument that uh, when people started to try to um, regulate it in the States, they used the word marijuana, which is kind of a, a Spanish version of the word Mary Jane, to make it, to, to create those um, associations with Mexicans that we hear about. Um so whether that's it, 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 it was a racial um, construction for sure. So whether it's racist is up to interpretation, I guess. I mean, there are some debates about the reasons that marijuana was restricted in general, um, and so it, it gets beyond just the word associated. With so the it, substance. is that how it's referred to in Mexico? Is that a Spanish term, or is that an American interpretation? It was a it was a term used. Yeah, yeah, in Mexico, I think. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it wasn't just, but, but yeah, the, the, I mean, the fact that the term Mary Jane was around uh, before as well, and then it was sort of converted, I'm not quite sure if the idea of Mary Jane started first. But it was also, um, there was also a religious connotation, and I can't remember the exact details around the, the idea of Mary, right? So, um, so there's a whole bunch of layers in there. So um, marijuana yeah, would be racist, but Mary Jane wouldn't? Uh I guess not because Mary Jane is an English word right. name. So it would, if you're calling it Mary, but the idea was the idea of it being racist is that they intentionally used a Spanish word to make that racial association with Mexican. Right. And then, and then trying to sort of stereotype the people who used it. Yeah. Yeah. That would, that's, that's the argument. And the problem with um, the history of drugs, especially around cannabis, is there a whole bunch of um, converging or diverging viewpoints. Um, there's a lot of, I wouldn't even call revisionist history, there's a lot of very biased history that um, plays up or downplays the, um, the racial connection. Uh, so is marijuana used as a term in circles where, academic circles where you're studying or medical uh, uh, circles, or is it cannabis? I see the word cannabis much more frequently. Cannabis was generally the, um, I don't know if it was a Latin-based term, but the pharmacological term, they talk about canica, uh, sorry, cannabis indica and cannabis sativa. Um, so that's where we would mo more likely see that. Um, although the act in the U.S. in the 1930s that is, is seen to be the one that um, banned marijuana is called the Marijuana Tax Act. So mm. when people talk about that, they're obviously going to use, they actually interchange the word, but they'll use the word marijuana more. Where did this plant come from? Do we know anything about its origins or history? Oh, uh, wow, man. This is There's another book for you, Dan. Uh, <laughs> um, it's, it, it, I, I'm not, I can't get into that. Honestly, I, I, I think it was uh, European. Oh, I know it, was, it started in, in Europe, not in Europe, in, in, in Asia or in North Africa. Um, and, but it was transplanted and uh, expanded use in, in America. And uh, cannabis, the, the plant itself, hemp, is, is a very important fiber in ship 
ship riggings and stuff like mm-hmm. that, right? So it was often planted for that. Um, but also the psychoactive properties and the medicinal properties were used in certain uh, cultures. There's, there's a myth that's, that's fully a myth, and it's completely unfounded, about uh, marijuana and hash, which is the oil for marijuana, and assassins, and this idea that assassins, hashish, and uh, the assassins were this group of people who would get high on hash and then go and kill people. Entirely a myth based upon European prejudice about Middle Eastern practice, but it took hold to the point where um, it was used in discussions around legislation prohibiting marijuana um, up until the at least the 30s and probably into the 80s. So it's, it's amazing mm. how powerful these racialized ideas of drugs and marijuana specifically um, can be. Interesting history. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, new laws are out in regard to this. Any surprises here? Obviously, uh, well, what are your thoughts? Is this the end of the dispensary? Uh, it, it is if if this goes through as written. Yeah, I mean, I, we've we've heard a lot about people saying the amount um, that companies can be fined if they're found to be selling uh, cannabis outside of the um, the Ontario um, up to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars for individual jail time of yeah. two years. I mean, this is pretty serious. Yeah, and a million for corporations. Yeah, de- I mean, depending on on the corporation, it might be nothing, but often. You know, if it's and they indicate corporation, this also applies to landlords, right? So you don't have to be selling, but it's it's a way of making sure the landlord is vigilant around where how they're getting their money. Is like this any different than the laws that came in after prohibition? Is this the same way we handled the sale of alcohol way back when? Not to the extent. I actually did a little homework and went back to the original laws and did a conversion of the the, the amounts of the fines. Uh, and the fine at the time for an individual found selling uh, was up to $1,000 or a month in prison if you couldn't pay. Hmm. Um, and that converts today to 1000 converts roughly, if I use the Bank of Canada's conversions, to about fourteen, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 today. So far below the, sort of the excesses of 250 to a million. Um, the highest, wow. the, the closest thing to a corporation uh, version of this is brewers or distillers who are found guilty. Um, be charged up to five thousand, but that was for selling themselves, selling their own products, not mm-hmm. for you know being landlords and that sort of. Thing. Well, that so, pretty much ends that discussion, doesn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's time it's to pull down the blind and shut out the lights, isn't it? Well, it, it certainly. Uh, well, I mean, this, what, what's happening here? We may have talked about this before. Is it really is the province making a very strong effort to seize control of this? This sale, yeah. and to uh, in such a way that it makes um, the provincial vendor or the um, the other way, which is going through, yeah, the provincial vendor, whether they're online or in the storefront, as the only um, one. It's it's it seems extreme, but I think, uh, I mean, the com- this is where the comparison to the 1920s breaks down because in the 1920s there weren't a lot of storefronts kind of flaunting the law, right? Mm-hmm. There wasn't that kind of situation, uh, so. I think they see this, and you know, right from when they first said, you know, you guys are on notice, as very much cracking down on the way that things have been done, um, because they are not as controllable as the province wants them to be. Um, can you put this genie back in the bottle? Um, is it too established to be doing that? The dispensary. Yeah, situation? will this be more difficult than during prohibition? I don't think so. I mean, the the, the challenge here is for the dispensaries is how deep are your pockets, right? Yeah. Because 
it really does um, some, when something has this you know a criminologist could say say more about this but when something has this um, this high steep of fine yeah um, it really is saying to the police as well look it's time to get serious about this yeah. I mean we're not just talking about you know, slapping someone on the wrist. We're talking about thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars of fines. And so, the fact that these fines are as high as they are, does that signal to you that they have no intention of changing their mind? This is not an open discussion. We will not be debating this. Yeah, yeah. I think that this is, um, well, I mean, yeah, they could debate the fines, but I don't think you're going to see people on the other side of the house saying, oh, no, it should be storefront, right? I mean, the the funny thing about this legalization is you've got a liberal government, in the provincial government, and then you've got a conservative opposition that's probably not going to uh, let the more libertarian among them speak up and say, no, let's just completely legalize it to corporate ownership. But that might not be the case because there's the two sort of streams of conservative thought. One is this stuff is a problem that should remain criminal. And the other one is you know, libertarian in, in, in nature, right? So the opposition is not the right opposition to to suggest that kind of, you know, let the let the dispensaries continue. Can they do, uh, can the uh, uh, the control board of this, whatever it's going to be called now, mm-hmm. what's it going to be called again? Do we know uh, what it's called? The Ontario Cannabis, cannabis Control. Something, yeah. or the OCRC, <laughs> I think. Or, yeah, uh, I can't remember that. Yeah. Uh, can, they, can they do, can government do what it says it's going to do, and by that controlling it, uh, keeping it safe, keeping it out of the hands of criminals and kids, can they do all of this with a storefront model? I've had security guys on that say they can. That say they can? They can, yes. Um, well, it's 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 easier to do it than um, if you did entirely online, if that's the alternative that's considered. Um, it's certainly easier to do it than if you had it in a private um, retail model, um, because the the... The, the agency most interested in controlling its distribution would not be the one in charge of the vending, right? Because um, the government's interested in control as right. much as you know, we talk about revenues and profits, but uh, a, a private company is interested in selling, right. right? It's interested in getting into the hands of their customers. So it's a different, it's easier to, yeah, it's, 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 it's more likely through a control model. And this is very much something that I've probably talked to you about before. It comes from uh, the liquor control model of what's called disinterested management, right, yeah. where the management has no interest in actually profiting from it. They just have an interest in controlling it, and they're rewarded for their controlling efforts. Uh, Ontario, the first to announce their plans? I think mm-hmm. they are, are they not? So yeah, BC, yeah. obviously tons of storefronts in BC. Are we just mm-hmm. assuming that they're going to allow them there, or will they pull the same as Ontario is doing? And how do you explain such a different opinion on this subject? Well, I would explain the different opinion based upon the culture of the expectations of the population, right? So um, in Ontario, as much as we're moving away from a, well, we've never really had a full booze monopoly, but we're moving away from the either beer store or, you know, the, those winery stores or a liquor store uh, run by the province system. In BC, it's gone further already. They've all, their, their liquor control stores have been um, joined by private um, stores, um, so there's sort of almost two types of stores, the um, the control board of BC or whatever they're called, and then these private stores who get their stuff from the liquor control board. In Alberta, it's even more open. Yeah. Right? So each province 
the, the population has an expectation around the substance, and then you combine that with the perceptions of cannabis, right? So in Alberta, I don't want to you know paint all Albertans with a single brush, but there may be more conservative views about legalizing. So it may be that they need a more controlled system than their beer, their booze system. Uh, but in, in BC, I mean, at least in Vancouver and some of the larger centers, cannabis is not viewed in that, like not generally viewed in that negative way, right? So, uh, many so will... The, the pop- sorry, go ahead. No, finish it. I was going to say, so the population might be more... Uh, receptive to right. a more liberal model. Of- uh, some of us in the East may point to Vancouver and BC and go, well, look at the opioid crisis there. They're at, the, yeah. they're at ground zero, man. I mean, yeah. they're, they're dropping like flies there. So let them have it. See what happens with loose uh, laws. Uh, does that, yeah. Is that an argument or is that unfair simply because well, of geographics and how close they are to the source? Um, do you mean let them have it as in... Let them have it. Yeah, like obviously their their system is a lot more liberal than what ours is. Critics uh-huh. in Ontario may say, uh, uh, critics of a, a, a more liberal system in Ontario might say, hey, listen, we want control of this. Look what's happening in BC. They've got more liberal laws, but they're the opioid capital of, of Canada. So yeah. there's a perfect example. Is that a fair comparison? I don't think that is a fair comparison because uh, as much as I'm not sure about the demographics of the opioid um, crisis. The opioid crisis comes from a different type of drug use and a different uh, degree of illicit um, distribution. And uh, it's, I, it, I'm not completely sure on the, the biochemistry of this or the even horticulture of this, but it's, if, well, I'll put it this way. If you have a substance that is controlled by an authority, that part of its job is to make sure the substance is, is what's being sold. It's not adulterated then the issue of fentanyl disappears, right? Because part of the problem with, big part of the problem with the opioid crisis is lacing opioids with stronger opioids, whether it's fentanyl in heroin or carfentanyl in anything that it touches, uh, including people's skin. Um, that is where you get the problem of the, 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 the people dying from opioid overdoses. Um, so if you have, and, and by the way, I don't think if you put opioids in, cannabis and smoke it i'm not sure if that's a, a, I, I could be wrong with that i'm thinking of cocaine there are some substances that when you burn them you can't yeah. uh, they they lose any kind of volatility so it's not a fair comparison because not only because of the type of substance but because as soon as you come well as soon as you have a regulated system where someone is actually assessing the product before it goes to the the consumer it's much less likely that um that uh that bad stuff will get into that product. Bad, I mean the wrong stuff, the stuff that could be taken in the wrong dosage and kill people. What about storefronts that are obviously selling medical? Will, will that be allowed at all? Is this just a recreational thing? Will storefronts still allowed, be allowed to sell medical marijuana? Uh, they have never been allowed to sell medical marijuana. Yeah, so it's got to be through not the mail. in Ontario. So right. So those ones. No, so those ones are, that are currently open now, even well, they are serving medical because recreational is still illegal. Um, yeah. Those are those are just completely illegal as it stands now, even it, through medical. It, it it seems that way. It it is tough because what happened is the cannabis act um, is distinguishing itself from the medical marijuana um, provisions. Yeah. So it's saying it's it's specifically about recreational cannabis, and and then the 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 act. If you've read it, it's like a 58-page document, but it's not just one law. It's also highway traffic modifications and the smoke-free Ontario modifications, and some of those do include provisions around medical marijuana, especially in smoke-free, um, where it looks at 
um, you know, smoking medical cannabis as well as tobacco in in uh, public places and when you can and can't do that. And the, the Highway Traffic Act includes people who I think it's um, if young drivers who aren't allowed to have any alcohol in their substance in their um, system are also not allowed to have any cannabis. But if they have a if they have proof that they're allowed to take medical marijuana, then there's a bit of an exception. So there are little pieces in there of, about medical marijuana, but um, it doesn't uh, it doesn't cover it. That said, um, medical marijuana is also not is not an exception for yeah. for a dispensary. The dispensaries are by the law illegal. Uh, announced they were they're announcing locations as well, or at least cities that will receive locations. Hamilton, one of those, the next closest locations for us, uh, Kitchener and Mississauga. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't. We'll get one of the first government stores. Will there be like one of these in every city? And you know, I'm, I'm reading what one of uh, the dispensaries is saying. Uh, there's thir- thir- currently 35 dispensaries in in Hamilton. Yeah. Uh, and they say that, you know, a lot of them have wait lines. So mm-hmm. how, how is this going to roll out fast enough? Uh, probably not. Um, it seems, though, that what the what the government has been saying, and I heard the Attorney, Attorney General speak about this a few weeks ago, um, that the that their intention is to place these in the best part, in the most likely parts of the um, community to capture, pardon the term, um, to sort of capture that customer base. And they also may be bigger than your uh, most of the smaller dispensaries. So so they will be, a, it won't just be like lining up for one small shop on the corner. It, there will be a larger space. That seems to be the expectation. Um, so when they, this is because when we were criticizing them a while ago about the, the relatively few numbers of um, stores they in, envision in the province, one of the reactions was, well, they're not just going to be um, one tiny store, right? They're right. going to be larger. So uh, it, but, but there will be more. It's, it's, it's a yeah. long process of kind of identifying the best places and then troubleshooting once those are in, whether it drives illegal activity into another part of the community or if it manages to appeal to that customer base. Dan, we were talking about when they started putting beer and wine in liquor stores, you know, what the next day was going to be like. Oh, it's it just going to be horrible. Yeah, pandemonium, uh, you know, New Year's Eve, hell, what is it going to be? One or the other. Uh, what do you think it's, <laughs> and of course, nothing happened. It was yeah. nothing. Um, that being said, I've still yet to buy uh, alcohol or beer from, from a grocery store, so yeah. I really don't know about the experience. That being said, uh, the day after this, yeah. Will it be the same, or will oh, this is going to be a bit of a freak show? It's it's tough to say. I mean, uh, one of the things again, I'll look back to 1927 when the stores opened, uh, the liquor stores opened. <laughs> one of the things that happened, in, at least in Niagara, was the second guy to buy booze in the liquor store was an American <laughs> coming over from, uh, I think from from like Cleveland wow. or something. But uh, yeah, I mean, and it was still dry over there, right? Prohibition was still going on, um, but it was all but seemed to be like the first day nobody kind of really showed up at the stores, just a few people. And then after that, the lines got longer. Once they started, um, once they realized that nobody was watching and, the, you yeah. know, and no one is peeking through their curtains. that you know, well, they, you're were <laughs> <laughs> yeah. they were watching. They were watching. And talking. But, um, what's that? And talking. Yeah, they were watching and talking, but they also, you had to have this little booklet, right? That you had, you were, everything was recorded. So there was sort of a, a surveillance component to it. But as far as what might happen in July uh, 2018, um, I imagine there will be some kind of displays of 
what we might call civil disobedience, people smoking in public, people sort of demonstrating, yeah. hey, it's legal now, uh, whether the police, you know, um, arrest them or just find them or just say, okay, you know, go, go back behind closed doors where you're legally allowed to do it, uh, may be the case. There will probably be some fairly significant lines after a few days at the stores. I think it could all lean to dancing and then eventually sex, Dan. I don't know. Oh, my God. Uh, Dan Malik has been with us, health sciences (laughs) professor, Brock University. Dan, thanks for the time and insight. As always, much appreciated. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The world is just getting wackier by the minute, and of course, Hollywood uh, confirming all of that. It, this started, I guess, with the whole uh, Harvey Weinstein thing and sexual allegations uh, against him, and then, of course, the floodgates seemed to open up. And then from there, uh, we're finding all kinds of people are involved, you know, making me wonder if it's just a simple case of Hollywood is rotten to the core. You know, at the end of the day, everybody who's successful in Hollywood, don't you all sell your soul? At some point, is it wrong for us to be surprised that this sort of behavior goes on all the time? And, um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if this involves the majority of actors and actresses uh, in Hollywood. Uh, Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, public relations consultant. Of course, you can read her stuff occasionally in the Huffington Post, Canada.com, PR Daily. She's with us now. Alyssa, how are you today? I'm fine, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. So is it safe to say House of Cards is dead and anything with Kevin Spacey's name on it? Pretty much right now. Nobody wants to touch him. Nobody wants to be affiliated. And one of the reasons is is that nobody knows how many more people are coming forward, both men and women, underage men and women uh, at the time, as far as he is concerned. But as I, you know, we talked about this before, and I said there's nobody in Hollywood who considers themselves safe. Everybody is sitting there thinking, did I do anything that would have crossed the line that seemed okay at the time, but doesn't necessarily seem so now? Do you think all men are, just not in Hollywood? All men? Well, that's a sweeping generalization. Yes, it is. No, I don't think all (laughs) men. But I do think that the veneer of tinsel has come off of Tinseltown. Uh, we live in a new world. People binge watch. There's lots of people out there who've never seen an episode of House of Cards who still probably plan to see it. Uh, this, of course, continues. These shows continue to generate money long after they're uh, produced. Do you think that will so- that will stop with this particular show? I know CHCH just started covering it, I and saw you're that, thinking, yeah. man, what a what a PR nightmare this is. How do you handle that if you're them? Well, I think that you can still. You know, I think that when you broadcast a show that's already been broadcasting, I don't know if you're guilty by uh, association. It, it's it's really a tough one. Like that is, you know, you put that question to me, and I sort of like really have to think about it. I think, well, if I still want to watch it, I'm going to watch it, even though I'm I am absolutely reviled by this guy. I mean, it's it's very much a personal opinion. I think that what they will do is take stock of their numbers as to who is watching and and if the numbers are going up or going down, and to, and to decide whether the risk is worth it. I think this is all about whenever you do get into these type of things, it's about mitigating your own risk. I don't think they have to be worried about guilty by association, but they certainly have to keep an eye on the ball. Will people who watch this relate to the character, or will they go, oh, that's that guy? 
Well, they really, I think it's going to be hard to, another good question. I think it's going to be really hard to disassociate the guy from the character. Yeah. Um, some people will say, well, I'm watching this for the character. I'm not watching it because I can't stand the guy. And other people will be reviled and won't turn it on. Uh, surprised that we've heard other allegations coming out regarding this actor and this series. No. Um, I think that people who have, you know, I was talking with some friends this morning and one of their kids has done some acting and he knew a kid and apparently the allegations about uh, stories, uh, swirling stories about Kevin Spacey have been going on for years, like they have with Mm. many people. That's my next question. Uh, Those that are speaking up, how hypocritical is this? I mean, it's great that we're having this conversation, I guess. But on the other hand, uh, can anybody sit at a table like one of those award shows in Hollywood and not look to the left or right and see someone who's experienced this? Well, I don't think it's hypocritical, Scott. I think that it's it's been a long um, ter- like a long secret. It's really just rearing its ugly head right now, where victims feel emboldened to talk. Some people say, "Okay, well, this happened ten years ago. This happened five years ago. I don't care if it happened one minute ago." We have to take the allegations seriously. There is obviously a systematic really seedy problem with Hollywood where the casting couch has become a de rigueur way of getting parts. Yeah. But and is that is anything new? Is that anything new, Alyssa? I mean, Pardon? is that anything new, Alyssa? I mean, don't you think, and I mean, maybe I'm just being uh, critical, too critical of all of this, but don't you think this is a lot deeper than what we think it is, that this is go, goes right to the core of Hollywood? I think this has been going on for the last 50 years. And I think that it's just a behavior that has been condoned, swept under the rug, and therefore nobody wants to talk about it, but everybody think, knows about it. Do you think it. this behavior is in the majority or the minority? I think it's in the majority. Yeah, I Absolutely, do too. and I think it's mainly for women. I mean, we are yeah. talking, uh, there are certain uh, stories swirling about uh, young boys who have been sexually assaulted by certain actors and directors and producers. Um, those may come forward, and those perpetrators, alleged perpetrators, who have been engaging in this type of behavior for years, decades, are all now really afraid. What about the gay angle? Uh, is the, oh, Almost uh, as if uh, Kevin Spacey used that for sympathy, it seemed, when he, when he came out after these allegations. Uh, should we be surprised that it's, it's heterosexual as well as homosexual? You know what? First of all, wrapping himself in the rainbow flag does a disservice to everybody who is homosexual. Like, that is supposed to um, either condone his behavior or explain it in some way. Behavior. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and I think that. I, I, there's a lot of communications crisis counselors that I have a lot of respect for, and I really have to wonder about what type of you know advice mm. someone like Kevin Spacey, not that I feel any empathy towards him, but honestly, what type of advice is he getting? You know, out, throw out the gay angle, and it might kind of throw the narrative off. And, and to be sure, it did. When I was watching some of the American news channels, I think NBC and ABC both said, and... You know, he's, he's come under fire, but the big news is, is that he's come out as gay. I mean, really? Yeah. Did they really take that bait? Mm. I mean, I was sitting there with yeah. my mouth open. No, I thought... I felt the same way, Alyssa. I thought, this is, this, this is something terribly wrong here. You know, and, I th- they th- and then maybe in the news, you know, in the story meeting, they're saying, well, you know what, this is reportable and we have to report it. But we're not condoning it as part of why he did his, um, you know, he did what he did. But really, uh, so yeah, did it have uh, the desired effect? 
yes, for about 24 to 48 hours. But Mm. then, you know, the next thing you have to worry about when you're in this situation is how many more are coming forward? So I've heard that five or six um, more allegations have come against Kevin Spacey, and I'm sure there are a lot more. Uh, Dustin Hoffman now dragged into this discussion. You feel (laughs) it's disappointing, isn't it? Tootsie! Scott. Exactly. Yeah. You know what? This man's eight. This man's eighty now. Coming out. I thought. Well, I'm thinking. Who else could they possibly go after? And I thought. Well, somebody like Dustin Hoffman. He must be above reproach. And then the next day, yeah. you see something about Dustin Hoffman, and you see that it was a one-off, and it was like slightly inappropriate. You know, enough to make someone uncomfortable. But then a second one. And, you know, all you need is one before everybody that you've ever um, acted in in perhaps an inappropriate manner has decided, you know what, I didn't like it either. Now, to be sure, Scott, listen, I've been in the workforce for more than 25 years. It's actually been more than that, but I stop at 25 years. (laughs) And and I have endured my own set of uh, remarks that have come my way about either my appearance or the way I looked in a particular outfit that bordered inappropriate. And as a young woman, first of all, if it's coming from somebody on high, you think, okay, well, just go ha 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 and, and, and laugh it off. Yeah. But then after a while, it's like, really? Is this, is this the way we're really going to talk about women and the, the way we're going to treat women? There's no way that, you know, once the behavior is condoned, then it kind of gives license to others on that same level to uh, participate. And that's what's been going on in Hollywood. Well, if he could do it and get away with it, well, oh, this is like manna from heaven, baby. I'm going to do it, too. Uh, the fact that uh, Dustin Hoffman is 80 and this all happened years ago, does that hold any weight? And and the reason I'm playing devil's advocate on this one, Alyssa, is, uh, as you said, times have changed. Times were different 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago uh, when some of these incidents may have happened for someone like a Dustin Hoffman. Uh, is, is, it, is it right to take a situation and a time there and then try to judge it by today's standards? I'm not justifying it in any way, but what about that angle? Yeah, you know, uh, some people were ta- are talking about that, and certainly the group of friends that I was speaking with this morning are saying, you know, this a lot of this happened a long time ago. And I'm like, well, what difference does it really make if you were felt uncomfortable about it or not? So it's... Um, <sighs> you know, I think it's, it, it's, it's... What this is showing is that nobody, nobody, no matter how beloved you are, is above and beyond reproach. So anybody in Hollywood who may have made a remark or acted in an untoward way towards um, a costume designer, a production assistant, an intern, you know, you've got to be sitting there thinking about your long storied and lauded career and thinking, am I next? Uh, talk about people knowing. Um, is anybody in Hollywood surprised at any of this? Uh, and is anybody asking the question, why now? Like, you know, what's the catalyst here? Is it uh, Spacey? Is it Cosby? Uh, why now? You know, it's interesting you bring up Bill Cosby, and you and I have talked quite a bit about him. And some of this was all about, you know, the whole Cosby thing, where it all came down to, and with Gian Gomeshi too, actually, um, the credibility of the women. 
of the witnesses. And in Gianco Meshi's case, the credibility and the inconsistencies um, got him off the hook, so to speak. Uh, you know, and then there was the Cosby, where is a lot of these allegations happened many, many years and decades ago, you know, way past the statute of limitations, yet women wanted, wanted to speak out. Some were taken seriously and some were not. So, you know, it, things go in steps. You know, li, you know, not often does a story just sort of explode without some sort of undercurrent that's been pushing it along for a while. And when you start with things like Bill Cosby, and then it starts to burble along, and then suddenly it comes out with, you know, Harvey Weinstein, who is a very, very big fish. And remember, many people have tried to do biographies of Harvey Weinstein, and he has surrounded himself with a phalanx of lawyers and crisis counselors in order, pre- in order to prevent any of this happening. But this broke through, and so you really needed to land, quote-unquote, a big fish in order to give um, uh, others a voice. And that's what happened in this case. And now what's happening is that there's a tide, and people who have felt bad for decades about what happened to them, who were left in industry because of it, or assistants and interns that were never, ever heard of again, you know, now it gives them a voice. The more that come out, and I suspect this will continue. Yeah, uh, sure, it'll I, continue. I, I, I mean, I don't know. Do you think it's going to become floodgates? Do you think every week it's going to be a different person? Yeah, I think so, too. Um, you know, the thing, the, the worry about that is this. I mean, there is burnout in every news cycle. That's my next point. Uh, will this become the norm, Will it, or will this change the discussion at all? Or at the end of the day, yeah, it's Hollywood. This is what we expect. Well, you know what I'm kind of waiting for? I mean, you know, this is, you know, making some sort of, uh, first of all, there's a few points. Where is HR in all of this? Okay? Every one of these big, big, you know, studios has an HR department. And a lot of these times when people complain to HR, it was swept under the rug. It, it was either the person was either too big or too powerful or made the company too much money. So where is HR in all of this? That's what I'd like to know. And the second thing is, is that this is just chipping away at the story. Really, Hollywood, the entertainment industry as a whole, really needs to make some wholesale changes and to show that they are changing, that people who are coming up and want to be in this industry can do so without fear of fear and reprisal. Now, when you want to change a system, it's not happening overnight. But I have yet to see any from any um, of the unions from any of the studios saying that we are reviewing our human resources policies, we're reviewing our sexual harassment policies, we're now giving training. Honestly, I haven't heard a peep. And that's what people need to hear. Do you think that... um uh, do you think that every successful actor, actress has has sold themselves some way in this? Do you think there's anyone who's successful that isn't guilty of this in some way? I think I want to take a, take a, 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 take objection to the word "sold themselves." And you know, it, it's uh, I understand where you're going with that, but I think that what we I don't know if it's selling your, yourself. I mean, you what could is it? say that. I mean, well, yeah. Well, then what is it? Well. I think because I've heard this from many Canadian actresses that, you know, uh, this person, that person, if you're successful, chances are there's a story there. Now, that could be just animosity between competitive actors. I'm not sure. But, you know, at, at the end of the day, will this will this turn against this is pretty much the Hollywood establishment. This is 
Hollywood establishment? Will this create an anti-Hollywood establishment movement, like a, like a populist movement? Much you like know, it has I'm wondering. Politics. I think that too many people like entertainment for it to become Yeah, that. but there's a lot of small players that are doing it differently now, and yeah. a lot of these big old fat conglomerates are on their way out. Well, Perhaps, I don't know. They're on their way out so far, so fast, Scott. I mean, some, you know, some people say that people are too big to fail. Um, you know, Miramax is certainly... <laughs> one of those that, w- that will become yeah. a casualty of this because it's so associated with um, Harvey Weinstein and his brother, who is probably already be also being investigated as we speak. So, you know, have they sold themselves out? I, I guess I just don't like that term. I think that they've also almost been a victim of the system. Mm. And the system is, this is the way it works. If you want to win this award, if you want to get this part, well, I've got a way for you to do it. Can we can we equate that the same as you know trying out for a job uh, for an every average an average uh, everyday person? I mean, I mean could we, you imagine? Uh, no. You know, oh gee, you want it, you want this job? I mean, yeah. that, no problem. Come but are we looking at this? My hotel room. But are we looking at this because it's Hollywood? Because it's 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 shallow. It, you know, there's a lot of money to be made for you know the the whole thing of Hollywood, the whole uh, the whole persona of Hollywood. You know, can can people sit back and, or stand back and say, you know what? Well, that's the game you're playing, and look what you're playing. Well, I think that the status quo can no longer be the status quo. And people who want to run into that or, or, or do that status quo, I mean, uh, uh, listen, I just think that people are going to blow the whistle on them. So, you know, people say, well, you know, you have to play the game. Well, what is the game? If the game is having to hit the casting couch, then that's a disgusting game. What about, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, George Bush uh, Sr. in his white, ch- in his uh, wheelchair. Okay. Uh, that I... he's, he's tapping <laughs> women's behind. They got, you know, the, and of course the picture with a big poo-eating grin on. Uh, is this taking it too far or is he guilty too? I think that nobody is above and beyond reproach, Scott. And I think that, you know, you're hearing stories that are, that, that run the, the gamut of the extreme. So when you look at someone like George Bush, you might think, okay, well, he's an old man and it's dumb, but yeah. you know, he, at this point, maybe he just doesn't know any better. Maybe you'll give him a pass. Uh, in other cases, you'll think, you know what, that's kind of disgusting. I think what it's doing is that it's building a narrative that no means no. And, you know, it's just not the perpetrators who are being vilified in the media right now who are guilty, but it's those who enabled them. Hmm. All of these guys, you know, and we're talking about men right now, and who knows if it's going to come out against women, but they all had assistants. Hmm. And every one of them was told, make, have this so-and-so yeah. come to my hotel room. Tell hmm. them if they want to get this part, they need, if they want to get further in the career, they need to come meet me here. Yeah. So there are a lot of enablers that nobody is talking about, but they should be. All right, one more question. Uh, holiday season coming, Christmas parties, holiday parties, what have you. Uh, is, should you ever touch, uh, hug, or kiss a coworker in a situation like that? Not against their will. And I think holiday parties and drinking... How do you know if it's against their will? Are you going, oh, hey, how are you? Go up, give a little kiss on the cheek, you know? Is that, I think is that, that if that, that person is receptive now? to, like, two kisses, very European on, yeah. the key, on the cheek, then, yes, I know people of European descent who do that all the time. But I think that there is a big difference, Scott, between a, you know, a, a kiss or a hug as a salutation and groping. Hmm. So, uh, so we... 
sh- what advice do we have there then? Because honestly, I'm thinking about this because I will often go up to uh, women and give them the kiss on the cheek sort of thing when I'm greeting them. I, I, and I've consciously said to myself, I've got to stop doing that. Then you know what? Unless you know them or uh, I would say stop doing it. You want my yeah. advice? Yeah. Stop doing it. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's not worth it because you never know how things are going to be interpreted. You might have the best of attentions, but honestly, you so can say if I meet you, if I meet you, if I meet you for the first time, I can't give you a hug. Yeah, you can give me a hug. I give you permission. <laughs> just don't grab anything. Uh, else. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, I've got so many things I could say, but I'd get in crap for it. You yeah, know? you will, and I'll be the first one to there call you. There you go. On. All right, Alyssa Freeman's been with us, public relations consultant. Alyssa, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Have a great weekend. And you too, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML.